Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Radio BX. It's July 7th, 2020. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange. Water efficiency has always been one of the primary concerns of green buildings. It has its own chapter in the LEED standard, carried over from the BREAM standard on which LEED was largely based. And it's an area that has seen some of the quickest and most effective performance improvements. Uh, 30 years ago, toilets that used seven, nine, even 12 gallons of flush were a regular feature of building specifications. But now the typical toilet uses uh, less than two gallons per flush. At the same time, it's an area that hasn't received the type of attention that subjects like energy use and material composition have, despite being a finite resource. And comprehensive water efficiency programs are largely the province of areas with drought problems, like California and the American Southwest. With water water rates rising around the country, including here in New York City, this might be changing. Uh, Our guest today, uh, Teg Paul Sandhu, has been thinking more deeply about these issues than most. Um, With a background as an MD and being something of a tech evangelist, uh, Mr. Sandhu is co-founder and CEO of Live Building Systems, a firm that provides real-time dashboards for building owners and managers to monitor their water and energy use and help them in in programs to reduce both of those. Uh, He joins us to talk about where water efficiency is headed and some of the data they've gathered during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr. Sandhu, welcome to Radio BX. Hey, Yatsu. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here to uh, be discussing this. Really glad to have you. Um, Teg, you have a really interesting and unique background. Could you tell us about your journey from being an MD to working on building science and working on water in particular? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, I came to this kind of industry, you know, the building industry and kind of the sustainability industry. By a different route. Um, I was a medical doctor practicing surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, I lived in a lot of different places uh, in my life uh, after Boston University. And when I came back, I was about to do a practice here at uh, Bridgeport Hospital in Connecticut. And, um, you know, things started to change a little bit when I was working with one of my good friends on kind of sustainability and seeing what was going on in the environment. Hmm. And that had a deep impact on me. Yeah. Uh, were there were there people uh, like mentors that really influenced you across this career change, like making that big move? Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure if there was one particular uh, mentor. If anything, it was uh, my family and my parents who kind of cared and uh, were more responsible about the environment. You know, I always say uh, people who know me well was, uh, you know, I've been fishing since I was three years old, almost my father. And uh, we would really respect catch and release limits. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, uh, animal lovers and uh, conservationists. Uh, we respected that that part of the environment. And back in the 1980s, there was a big push uh, against litter. I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember or when <laughs> recycling <laughs> started to really come into play. Yeah. So that always was in the back of my mind. But as um, you know, I was also a kind of person that if I got sick, like if I had 
you know, a cold, I would actually take some of the books behind me and start diagnosing myself. Mm -hmm. So I always like to look for the root of a problem, whether it was in a human being. And in some cases now with the building industry, uh, buildings and inefficiency and waste. Yeah. That's great that you're taking kind of a, a diagnostic uh, approach to, to building systems. It's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned your fishing background because I grew up fly fishing with my father and I am certain that that had a huge influence on my sort of concern for the environment because it's an ecosystem that you see the changes so quickly within. Um, you can't ignore them um, if you care about it at all. It's really interesting. So that's a great, also a good segue to, to water, uh, which is an area that your firm focuses on uh, a lot. Um, it hasn't, in the Northeast anyway, it hasn't received as much attention as sort of energy use and some of the other indoor air quality issues like that, all of which are important, of course. Do you have a sense about why that is, or is it just because we live in a relatively wet environment <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not drought, it's no, there's no desert here? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a, it's a complicated question. Um, you know, the climate question and resource allocation, when you look at natural resources like water, like fuel, uh, like electricity and the, and the fuel that goes to burn that electric, they're all very important. And I think what has gotten a lot of attention is energy. So energy and the CO2 output of consuming energy has been very much on the media and the news and rightfully so with the changes in greenhouse gas and then kind of climate change and the climate crisis, they rightfully so were focused on. And they focused on the supply side and the production of that energy and ways to make that more efficient, ways to uh, practice renewable energy uh, and, and make sure that the, the supply side was using uh, the best practices. Yeah. And then on the demand side, uh, rightfully so, they focused on efficient controls, lighting that was better for the environment, um, sustainable practices like turning off uh, things that you're not using. And water consumption was always kind of viewed as, you know, the human body is 78% water. <laughs> so when you walk outside, you, you think about that there's no issue there. You know, there's plenty of water. It rains every day or, or whatnot. But the water question was more complicated than just, well, it rains every day, so there should be plenty of water. When you look at deforestation, that leads to droughts uh, in areas like Africa and Kenya, and also the Pacific Northwest, or more so California in the United States. We're kind of blessed here in, in the Northeast where we kind of have a, have a lush green environment and we got a lot of water from the uh, upstate reservoirs and all that, those kind of things. But the question is, regarding water is that I think that it was just a, an idea that it didn't add up to the energy question at yeah. that time. Yeah. Climate change kind of takes, took prominence over the last you know decade or so, which makes a certain amount of sense, but water is a finite resource. Um, and even in the Northeast, you know, we have development pressures have a huge impact on the availability of fresh water. That's why, you know, there's so much control over the Catskill area, um, which is our, our, essentially our, our uh, water catchment area for the city. Um, our use of water uh, on some basic level comes down mostly to the performance of the fixtures um, in, in our buildings. But what is the balance between that and is there also a role for education to kind of drive behavior change? Well, I think that a couple of things occurred um, over the past 20 to 30 years 
the infrastructure built in areas like New York City, aqueducts, uh, yeah. pump, sta pump stations, these things required a lot of maintenance and upkeep and they're very costly. The next thing that, that happened is the climate crisis that was kind of, uh, and we're focusing on those greenhouse gases, they started to affect the kind of environment of water production and the water cycle in areas like California, uh, dams and such, hydropower, you know, good and bad, um, acid rain from air pollution. So the water uh, infrastructure and the water resources, you know, water tables, aquifers in Long Island becoming polluted, that started to become very prominent over the last 30 years. Then what happened, you had an uptick in the, the cost, the maintenance of our clean potable drinking water system. And that dovetailed into an increased cost on the user side, which in this case is the building owner, or sometimes if there's a single family house, house the, uh, you know, the homeowner. Right. And when you look at uh, the water fixture question, that was definitely a response to, on the demand side, to limit consumption, to limit waste, to be more efficient. But there's definitely now, I think, uh, what we're talking about is behavioral modification of people's behavior, attitude to water consumption, and also leaks and waste in water. Yeah. So I do think there's, there's a two-part kind of two-pronged attack when you go on the demand side of, of water consumption. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you just look at the average rates of use uh, in other countries where maybe heating water is a lot more expensive because energy is so much more expensive. Like in Europe, you know, we use six or seven times <laughs> the, on average, the per capita um, uh, water use as, as folks in Europe. And that's, that's really all about behavior, not really about fixtures. So there's so much work that we can, that we can, uh, that we can do there. And it sounds like, you know, you mentioned all of that infrastructure that basically brings potable water to us. And that is also really, really important. I think it's, it seems to me like we still aren't paying the full cost of that infrastructure in our water rates that that's only slowly kind of, and I, it seems to me that the, those rates are going to increase, uh, continue to increase. Is, is that your sense as well? I mean, unfortunately it, it looks like as you know, the kind of state, local and federal government continue to maintain and the, you know, semi-private companies that run these utilities, especially on the water side, continue to maintain it. They are going to pass off some of that cost to the end user. Yeah. And, um, you know, necessarily so in some cases, uh, when you look at uh, the disasters that happened at Flint, Michigan um, yeah. over yeah. the past, you know, number of, of years. Yeah. Um, so we need to maintain this great infrastructure that was built in uh, New York, go going back to the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century and carried on. Um, but it's going to come at a cost. And that's why we need to look at what we as individuals and building owners and tenants can do to stem that cost a bit. Yeah. Uh, Flint's a really, a really important thing to note, I, I, I think. Um, you know, we tend here in New York because we are blessed with pretty strong water infrastructure um, and have, for the most part, I would say, sort of eliminated most of those types of problems. So, you know, like, you know, vast networks of lead pipes and things like that. Um, there are still so many communities around the United States that do not benefit from that, which is really terrible. Um, and it's something we have to, we, we have a lot of work to do there nationally, certainly. I mean, thinking about that, all of that infrastructure and the cost of all the infrastructure, 
um, you know, one of the weird sort of operating assumptions about water use in the states is that we just use potable water for everything. Um, and there is a certain level of absurdity to, you know, protecting the Catskill watershed and building all these aqueducts and, and reservoir systems and things, getting it all this water to us, and then we use it to flush toilets or irrigate landscaping. Um, what will it take to get our communities to really embrace the use of gray water systems on a broader scale, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so when I did some work and it, you know, we have a building, a live building in India right now. I noticed that a lot of buildings in India were actually constructed where they had gray water systems. So the clean drinking water was only going to the taps of kitchen sinks um, for drinking. And then the toilets were getting gray water systems. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, on existing construction, it's a large, it's a large retrofit to do. So I don't know if the economics are there. On new construction with architecture firms, it should definitely be a part of the question, and especially when you're talking about passive housing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, um, there's so many areas where other countries are more advanced than us. We like to think of ourselves as you know, the kind of leaders of the developed world, but there's just so many systems like this one where other, other folks are, are pushing the envelope in a way that we, we haven't um, yet. And I think there's a lot we can learn um, from these other places. Yeah, I mean, you, you have this great, I mean, sometimes the abundance and like the, the you know, there's, there's a great book on, um, it's on Paris and the water and sewer system of Paris built by Napoleon III. Mm-hmm. It's, it details how great that sewer system was. Yeah. And then the Roman Empire, Rome, had aqueducts that still stand today yeah. uh, and still actually bring spring water into the city of Rome, you can see them on the public taps. Yeah. New York is one of the places that has a great aqueduct system that was built in the past. But oftentimes that can be a blessing and a curse when we take water for granted. Yeah. And I think that's where the cost is kind of hitting the wallet on some of the owners and tenants and making them think twice about throwing water away or down yeah. the drain. Yeah. So your company, you, know, you noted you're building in India, you have a lot of buildings in the New York area um, that you're tracking. You've been tracking water use in residential buildings uh, throughout COVID-19. Um, one would assume that with all of us home, with our pets, <laughs> um, that we would be using a heck of a lot more water. Um, but it sounds like that's not what you're finding. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the data you're seeing? Yeah, um, you know, so when we kind of, started this whole process of like what i like to say demand response on water because you know you have a demand on a toilet and there's a response from the system and from the on-site staff and when we started benchmarking real benchmarking of buildings on water consumption uh basically uh, using a particular client's portfolio a very large one flat not you know flatlining the the water and making sure that the building was tight meaning no leaks uh, we saw that you could actually really reduce the overall footprint of water consumption. And we, we kind of started seeing that even in buildings where they would say there's crowding or high occupancy, um, if there were no leaks, the building would use a lot less water. Mm-hmm. So when we started to look at now, starting in March 22nd or on March 28th in New York and in certain other areas, we expected to see a really high increase in water consumption in the metropolitan area. And what we saw was 
either you know statistically insignificant increases or decreases. Wow. Um, from the big buildings that and the, the they you know there's over five thousand buildings in the database. So there's yeah. they stretch the um, the kind of spectrum of low income housing of high end uh, luxury of commercial and um, you know commercial saw of course reductions from the pawns but multifamily across the board didn't see the type of increases that we would say were attributed to occupancy so what that did for me was um, there was a sentiment over the past four years that was well people use water and people who don't work use a lot of water um, so that was you know, actually, um, you know, driven home that there was actually a difference here and the, the data didn't back it up. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, I mean, is it possible that part of the reason is that if they're a building that's in your system, water efficiency is something they're already paying attention to. And so they've probably eliminated most of them, their leaks um, and things like that. And so that must have some role in the, in the data set that you're looking at. Uh, well, we continued, of course, the, the software was remote, so we could actually see if there were leaks during this time period. And actually, leaks did occur during this crisis, and it was a challenge to actually... To respond. Sure. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. go into tenants' apartments. Sure, yeah. So what we did was develop kind of a line of communication between super tenant and our staff, where we would do door drops. And what we tried to impress upon our clients was, hey, this is an opportunity to be safe, healthy, but also communicate, you know, with, with the tenant. And then also develop a COVID protocol that allowed people to say, we're going to enter in, we're going to be safe, wear masks and, and gloves and disinfect, you stay 10 feet away, and we're going to fix this, and then we're going we're gonna to leave in a, in a professional manner. Yeah. So for some of the clients... We were some of the first plumbers and electricians back in their buildings sure. uh, during this time period. Sure. But definitely um, overall on the water side, if there were no leaks, we continued to see low consumption. If there were high leaks, we saw, you know, we saw them fix it for the most part. Yeah. The most part. Yeah. I mean, do you think, uh, not just thinking about COVID-19 period, is leak detection sort of one of the major benefits of folks being on a dashboard system like yours? Um, I think that leak detection, you know, is one of the major benefits for being on a real-time system. Yeah. And, you know, whether we were kind of very fresh out of the gate um, with communicating with networks out there that utility companies had used but hadn't maybe um, accelerated their growth, or uh, smart computers and hardware that could actually process um, utility uh, water meters, and then the revolution of the cloud. So leak detection is um, the minutely data, the hourly data is extremely important for that process. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, data is only as good as, as you make use of it, and it sounds like you all have done a very good job of figuring out how to communicate and work with the people about what that data means and what they should be doing in response to it. Uh, I, I think there's a fair number of sort of dashboards out there that just sort of sit blinking away. <laughs> and if no, if no one's kind of, uh, you know, operating on how do you now talk to humans about what this data means? Uh, but it seems like you have all really focused on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing was about, you know, if, 
you know, again, not dating myself, but I remember, you know, Apple IIe's being a very hard computer to use as a child. Right. And I learned about it. And then when we, you know, middle school and high school, when we got to learn about Windows and Macs and typing class uh, and the kind of computer revolution, and then you had the smartphone revolution, which made it even easier for people to use software and systems, we kind of took approach like, why isn't this easier for a building staff to use it and a manager to use it? So not just only the energy analyst whose job it is maybe to look at water, electric, and fuel, but but also the on-site staff. And if you could give them this tool, if you could empower them to give them insight and accountability, you might make you know might, might be able to make an impact. And that's why we took a very software approach to it. And then hands in, you know, I, I inspected thousands of apartments four years ago. Huge inspections, uh, training with staff. Uh, working yeah. hand in hand, um, and also kind of uh, dispelling some of the the myths out there that you know, oh, this new gadget with this new chain is is better than the simple flapper and the fill valve, right. because when you look at uh, in totality the kind of infrastructure of your plumbing system, you have to understand. Well, are the parts hard to get? Are your, is your super going to be able to fix that? Sure. You know, all these type of things are make make this process uh, better. So when we have our clients, like some of the big ones, um, I know their water consumption actually is the best in the city. And that's, that's saying something for those type of buildings they have. You know, with water receiving more and more attention, you know, as costs go up and, and, and as people, you know, I guess, begin to understand maybe even on a global, uh, in a kind of global, the global perspective uh, that it is a finite resource that we need to be caring for more attentively. What, what policy triggers would you recommend to really drive down um, water use in the long term? You know, in the energy space, we have Local Law 97, which is a, you know, new set of legislation that limits carbon emissions of large buildings, like on a per square foot basis. Do we need something like that for water moving forward, do you think? I think that we need some some programs and some incentives to reward people who actually use less water. And we need to take a long look at the justification of having a flat rate water system that encourages uh, leaks, it encourages waste, um, it destroys buildings, and it makes tenants have a more uncomfortable habitat. Why? Because leaks bring roaches, they rot out pipes, and they bring rodents. And I can tell you without a question, the, the first step is the MCP policy. And this might not be very popular with a lot of people. We have clients who have MCP, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm a very honest person, but from a conservation you know, standpoint on water consumption, the MCP policy is one of the worst policies around. So you should, you should explain to our audience what, what the MCP yeah. policy is. Yeah. So that's the flat rate on the, on the DEP. It's the flat rate, meaning that you, if you use a thousand gallons and you paid for a thousand gallons, great. But if you use 2000 gallons, you don't pay for the extra thousand. Now, the side of that is that if you don't use a thousand gallons, say you use 500 gallons, you still pay for the thousand. And one of the biggest kind of, this is long, long throughout, I think the water kind of industry in New York from the 1980s that, you know, people believe that it was better to be on this flat rate. And one of the biggest things we saw 
was, you know, some of the biggest buildings that you would never imagine should switch from a flat rate to a metered rate actually did and actually saved, you know, upwards of a million dollars in one year. So it's really an important analysis. Um, and it's really important to not take water for granted. So that's uh, one of the policies that has to probably be looked at. Yeah. And even if we're metered, you currently, if you're metered, you pay the same amount for the first gallon as you do for the 2000th gallon. Isn't that correct? Or is it, does it escalate? It's, it's the same amount. So it's if you're metered, you pay, I think it's 0.0138 cents per gallon. Um, and you continue to pay that. That's, that is sewer and um, the gallon charge. Yep. Um, you know, and basically, you know, the biggest clients uh, with some of the nicest buildings and some of the toughest buildings all have switched to metered because the rate at which the flat rate is, it just doesn't make sense to be on it yep. if you have some knowledge of your water consumption. Yeah, but you can see all, yeah, and you can see uh, a place where you could have a, you know, like demand response in electricity if you, you know, as you were saying before, if you use more than a certain amount per square foot or per occupant, um, then the water rate goes up um, some some amount. You could see a staircase uh, there that would really impact and get people to really start thinking about overuse. Yeah, and, and that is that's how other water companies do it. So American Water in Long Island will charge you for uh, the first 500 at a, a certain rate, and then above that they charge you at a different rate. So similar to a, a electricity. Uh, the DEP is one of the few water utility companies that has kind of the standard 0.0138 yep. for, you know, if you used as much water as you wanted. Yep. Um, you know, what we see is that, you know, the meter rate encourages water efficiency. Um, and it's, it's a challenge for a multifamily building owner who has tenants who technically don't pay for their water. So another one of the big things that people are starting to do is they're starting to Submeter residential tenants for water consumption, and that's very controversial in some people's opinions. Um, but the the idea is that if they pay for it, they're they're less likely to to waste more. Um, so that is that's one of the other policies that's kind of being you know thrown around there. So looking uh, sort of at the future, kind of near term, are, are there technology advancements? that we can look forward to that will help us drive down water use either either on the, the sort of fixture side of things or on the your end of the kind of software end of things? I think there is a lot of technology that's out there um, that some is good, some is really, you know, um, not there yet. So I think there's a lot of challenges for clients and building owners to know what they're picking. Yeah. Um, there's technology out there that put temperature sensors on pipes that, you know, they, they, they basically off the premise that if water continues flowing, it'll be a cold temperature. Uh, but in the end of things, that doesn't really solve a question on what is the actual water flowing through there? And is it just normal usage or a leak? Yeah. Um, so some of that technology, I don't think the algorithms on the back end are built up enough for that. There is the sonar technology, companies who I know and I beta test their versions, um, you know, and I, I've seen it uh, work and then I've seen them pull back uh, because of the, just the computing power on the 
AI and the machine learning system, most of these companies are not based in Palo Alto. One is, and I, I work closely with him trying to see if they can get this right, but I'm just being very frank and honest with the, the listeners out there. It's been five years I've been waiting for the product. I've beta tested three versions. What is the sonar technology? It's listening. So it listens to the pipe. I they see. listen to the pipe and, and gotcha. the feedback. So they're, they're trying to listen and hear when the flow is going. And that calculation with how much water is going through. So it, it's quite complicated. It's much more data intensive, more complicated. than that. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at technology, like the simplest thing is a submeter, is an inline submeter, because it is water in, water out. Sure. The complicated thing about technology in the energy industry um, and why it's been such a barrier for, for large technology companies to get involved with real-time energy monitoring or submetering in general is that you still need to aggregate a physical, physical material, whether yeah. it's electricity or gas or oil or water. You need to aggregate that somehow and you need to catch it, aggregate it. What happened recently over the past 10 years, let's say, the revolution of cloud computing. Yeah. So that has changed the industry. And that's why companies like mine can apply cloud computing and heavy data analytics to hardware on the field. And that's made a very big difference. That's great. Um, my sort of last question is, is, um, is who do you feel are like the real thought leaders uh, in the water efficiency space? So there's people whose work really influences you um, even if they're outside of, of, of that field, um, who, who are, who are you sort of inspired by as you, as you go about your business? Yeah. I mean, I think about it a lot. Um, you know, I, I try, I try to find, um, people who kind of think a little bit, uh, critically like that in this, uh, this industry and, uh, you know, not, not sounding too pompous. Um, I think Bill Gates is probably, the one person on the energy, water, and kind of you know, kind of holistic approach to climate um, that I look for inspiration mm. from. Definitely from their yeah, their work on on health, on yeah. water in, in Africa and, and India. Um, I think they are an inspiration. I think it's very tough to find uh, an individual. Why? Because the water question isn't just about whether we use less on a toilet flush in a lot of places, it's whether they can get access to clean drinking water. Yeah. yeah. So the priority switch sure. where you are, depending you know? on your community. Yeah, sure. So like if you're in, if you're in India, you know, in one of those water stricken areas where they don't have the beautiful infrastructure we have here in New York yeah. and they have water, you know, bust in uh, their, their first is, can I get clean drinking water? That's yeah. their number one. They're not worried about a running toilet, even though they respect water, maybe much more than we do here in New right. York, where our number one is, yes, we have clean drinking water, but now we're worried about the waste of that water, the cost of that water, the destruction that it does to buildings, and also the economic cost of it to ownership. I don't think many people realize that the water budgets in their buildings, whether they're on flat rate in New York or metered rate, are second to their fuel consumption across the board. Yeah. And that's, that's eye-opening to many people. Yeah. And I think um, many people think they're powerless to do anything about it. They think, well, tenants use water. There's nothing, leaks happen. Um, so it yeah. really is a challenge. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it sounds like 
one of the key things moving forward is just increasing transparency around around water use. Yeah, I mean, the one of our, you know, one of our founding principles of, of all this, when you're looking at energy monitoring and real time energy monitoring is data transparency. Yeah, uh, data transparency isn't just a catchphrase. It means that people should know how much they use and when they use it. They should have their you know, utility logins. They should have their, their utility logins, understand it, have the email addresses. They should be independent on their knowledge base. And then the freedom from what democratization of data kind of means to us is it means the freedom from the utility company that you can access your water meter, your electric meter, your fuel in real time fast enough to do something about your consumption and change the behavior of yourself or the people who live in live, live in the building. Yeah. You know, one of these things like we're we're now coming up to is this idea of smart smart homes and smart buildings. And that is a real question mark. I mean, people think that just because you have a Nest or Alexa, you have a smart home. Well, <laughs> right. what does that smart home do for the environment on the electric side or the water side yeah. or or the fuel side? but convenience. So that's a, a really interesting question when you look at the smart home industry we live in today. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great uh, note to finish on. Do you have any last, uh, last thoughts for listeners before we go? You know, I think the only thing I can say is that I, you know, I, I've taken this approach as, a, as an MD. Our thing is to do no harm to our patients. So if buildings are our patients, we don't like to do any harm to them. And I think we can all work together to make an impact. I mean, it's really about the power of one, one building at a time, one on-site staff at a time, one tenant at a time. If you can reduce and be more efficient, you save and you help the environment. Yeah, it's great. Great words to finish on. Teg, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thanks to everyone for listening in. And we're looking forward to seeing all of you at a, at a future Radio BX uh, episode soon. Uh, Teg, thank you again. Take care. Thank you.